Hi, I'm Eleanor Collinson, Senior Researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the Yakri Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dirk van der Klee, Program Director of Policy Research at China Matters, an Australian public policy initiative. He is also a PhD candidate at the Australian National University, with his doctoral thesis focusing on the People's Republic of China's economic statecraft. He is a recipient of the Australian Endeavour Postgraduate Scholarship, which he used to complete two years of fieldwork in China and Central Asia. The Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI, has been the subject of deep, involved analysis since its inception in 2013. Written into the Chinese Communist Party Charter in 2017, the ambitious BRI is a key pillar of the PRC's foreign policy agenda. Conceptually defined as a program of connectivity enhancement, 126 countries and 29 international organizations have signed cooperation agreements of various sorts with China under the BRI umbrella. But the BRI has generated and continues to generate major controversy. The BRI faces deep scrutiny with criticisms against what is perceived as Beijing's strategy to erode the liberal rules-based order and as a vehicle through which to reshape regional norms in its own favour. Allegations of debt trap diplomacy have become the cri de cœur among critics who argue that the BRI is little more than a means for the PRC to increase its economic leverage over regional neighbours. In Australia, the federal government's response thus far might be characterised as something like cautious openness, having expressed in-principle support for greater infrastructure development in the region and a policy of engagement on a case-by-case basis. In November last year, Prime Minister Scott Morrison told Saishin magazine that, quote, Australia welcomes the contribution the Belt and Road Initiative can make in meeting the infrastructure needs of the region, end quote. But Australia's engagement with China and infrastructure developments are contingent on having acceptable governance standards and project transparency, including detail on how disputes might be mediated and local participation. These are oft-cited concerns held not just by Australia, but by many other countries who have yet to substantively engage with the BRI. Dirk van der Klee joins us today to discuss the Belt and Road Initiative its economic and technological dimensions, and the ramifications for Australia. We will also be talking about Australia's response to the BRI to date and policies that Australia might consider adopting in future. So, Dirk, welcome to the Acro Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Now, you recently wrote a policy brief for China Matters, the Australian Public Policy Initiative, on what Australia should do about the Belt and Road Initiative. We'll be using that policy brief as a jumping-off point for this discussion. So for those of you listening in, the brief is available online at chinamatters.org.au. That's chinamatters.org.au. So let's get started, Dirk. Um, In describing and discussing the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI, The People's Republic of China, the PRC, places emphasis on the initiative as being driven primarily by the goal of connectivity enhancement. But it has been argued many a time by observers that the BRI more so serves the PRC's own strategic interests. On balance, which is the driving imperative and what are said strategic interests and how successful has the BRI been thus far in realising them? So when we talk about the BRI, I think it is important to note that it is both of those things. What you say there is both. And if you try and order one over the other, I think you sort of end up in an analytically difficult position in that 
it really is both at the same time. And I, I probably, in describing the BRI, I want to give just a little bit of a broader definitional um, explanation, as I wrote in the, uh, the policy brief. It has become so big and so unwieldy uh, that sometimes it's hard to separate what the BRI is from broader foreign policy. And as you rightfully say, uh, the emphasis, at least in official documents, has been on connectivity enhancement. Uh, but because it is, connectivity can mean so many different things, almost every single actor in the PRC, regardless of whether they are in technology or in economics or they're building infrastructure, they try and label their projects BRI projects. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether, it sometimes doesn't matter whether a country has actually signed up to the BRI or not. For example, as I wrote in the paper, uh, the Darwin port that was invested uh, by Landbridge Group uh, in Australia, the CEO or the owner of that organisation said that uh, this was a part of his contribution or his company's contribution to BRI. So you end up with a situation where it gets very hard to separate from broader economic policy and broader technology policy. So when to get back to your original question, which is, is it, it is a case that it has a domestic uh, component where it is trying to uh, allow companies within China to move abroad and to sell their goods overseas. Uh, there is also a connectivity component as well. And then there's also a strategic component in that if a country becomes more reliant on the PRC economically or technologically, it can also be, um, that can be used for political ends to either naturally align uh, the goal, political uh, goals of both countries, or it can also be used in a coercive manner as well. And I would point out that uh, given that it's now so broad, a lot of the things that happened under the BRI umbrella now also happened before. I think almost everything happened before. Infrastructure spending, trade promotion, people-to-people uh, -people links, financial integration, the kind of things that get discussed with BRI, they were happening, or at least there are attempts to make it happen, long before um, Xi Jinping announced the BRI initiative in 2013 in Kazakhstan and then in Indonesia. Well, President Xi Jinping used this year's Belt and Road Initiative Forum to announce a raft of updates to BRI governance in particular. The BRIs also experienced somewhat of a scaling back by the PRC. Now, to what extent do these new measures address the criticisms or concerns regarding the BRI levelled by other countries, and will they perhaps result in a less ambitious framework? Uh, yeah, so I think the strategic goals that China has in the region, and as I said, a lot of the activities that happen in the region are now under the BRI banner, and that they are, you know, making the region more amenable to China's rise, uh, making the US be less of a player economically and technologically in the region, those goals will remain the same and won't diminish. And I think the domestic development goals, trying to move China up the manufacturing chain um, and using technology and advanced manufacturing as the next form of growth within China, that doesn't change. What we're seeing is some small working uh, workings on the edges. Um, I think the, the point that you make there is there is a suspicion or a recognition in Beijing that um, 
some of the oversight, particularly on infrastructure projects funded by concessional loans, have not been effective in terms of a project and also strategically as well. Everyone mentions the Sri Lanka Hambantota port. That's one. Um, another one is uh, the railway in Addis, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to Djibouti. Uh, that's currently being repaid, but that's been extended from a 10-year repayment cycle to a 30-year repayment cycle with a recognition that the initial um, set of conditions there were not um, beneficial for the recipient state and it would have been very difficult for them to pay them back under that capacity. And in fact, the um, Sinoshore, who's the insurer of most of these projects overseas, the chief economist said of that particular project that due diligence had been woefully lacking. And I think that's probably reflective of the broader opinion in um, China about where that project's going. Because it's had such bad press at a strategic level, it is really not achieving its goals either. And at an economic level in terms of connectivity, it's finding it harder than it was before because countries have become so... Um, for want of a better word, concerned about some of the projects. So what we're seeing in response is one part, um, recipient states are being more demanding in what they ask. I think we can look at Malaysia there, Malaysia, Myanmar. Uh, Thailand also is in long-term negotiations over a railway, but that started before really the Hambantota port issue came to light. And so the countries themselves are being more... Um, diligent in seeing the conditions that happen. And Beijing has recognised that there is, there is in certain cases, uh, a debt problem and a problem with opacity. But I do want to highlight when it comes to debt uh, in our region, and as I write in the paper, there's really only a small number of countries that both have uh, poor levels of debt sustainability as recognised by the IMF and also have borrowed significantly from China. And they are really Lao, Tonga, Samoa. Um, beyond that, there are there are relatively few in our region, but if some of those projects that were on the line, for example, the East Coast Rail Link in Malaysia that was originally meant to be something in the order of you know over $10 billion, uh, if that project had have gone ahead in its original format, it may have been um, quite expensive for the recipient state. So we're now seeing sort of at both ends um, more due diligence. The, the next question is whether the opacity around financing um, can stop. I'm not sure that that can, just given the nature of the policy banks in the PRC. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to deliver the kind of transparency necessary. And as you say, when it comes to a scaling back, we certainly have seen a scaling back in the loans and we're seeing our investment in many parts of the world from the PRC not growing at the moment. Now, I think that might be to do with several other things, um, particularly the movement of uh, money out of China has been restricted. That's one part of it for smaller investors. And then for larger investors, we are seeing some tighter controls uh, generally that maybe not necessarily just a factor uh, of BRI. Economic dependence um, is often the main focus when it comes to discussions of an analysis on the Belt and Road Initiative. But Technological dependence is also an issue that needs to be discussed and brought to the fore, and you do that in your policy brief for China Matters. So you mention in your paper that the BRI includes a technological dimension, the digital silk road, that seeks to shape norms in the regulation of emerging technologies. What has been the uptake of this technological statecraft by countries in Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands in particular, who have signed up, so to speak, 
to the BRI and what might the implications of this be for Australia? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think it's important to note at the start everything I say about technology and technological dependence here uh, should be caveated by the fact that um, in a lot of cases the PRC provides good technology at cheap prices and countries in the region that have limited budgetary expenditures, it's not surprising that they take that on board. Um, so that's a caveat to everything that I'm going to say now because they, they really do provide benefits for the region. The take-up depends on the individual technology. So the most common, at least in my opinion, the most common sort of item that we've seen purchased by um, countries in the region have been uh, internet cables, whether it be marine cables or across the land. Um, but you've also seen smart city technology. Early stages in 5G and that a lot of countries are doing testing with Chinese um, firms. Not many have signed on to a full 5G um, network yet, but we're certainly seeing early testing. It looks like Huawei is well positioned to probably build uh, quite a few of the networks in the region. And I'd probably say that the digital Silk Road in some ways has become more important than the sort of traditional infrastructure of roads and rails, uh, certainly. So I did my PhD um, on uh, China's relations with Central Asia. And when I first started, it was all about roads and rails. And then sort of by the end, everyone was talking about smart cities and optic, uh, optic fiber cables, fiber optic cables. Uh, and so that's really where the emphasis is now. Uh, those projects, one, have a number of advantages. They tend to be cheaper than a big railway. Railways tend to run into billions of dollars. Smart cities, for example, is in the tens of millions. A cable could be hundreds of millions if it's a really long and expensive, long and big and expensive one. Uh, and I think a really good sort of uh, factoid around this that you don't see in the paper is that of all the Chinese firms that are doing overseas contracting work, whether that's fin financed by the Chinese state or by recipient states, Huawei is now the leader. So they're actually building more dollars worth of stuff than, say, China Road and Bridge Corporation or the Railway Corporations. And so this really is um, a key component. When it comes to the certain risks uh, that states face, I think there's a few. Uh, one of them is in case of a political... Um, where there's political tensions, uh, we don't know yet. But Huawei, for example, if there are backdoors in their technology, could potentially slow down or disrupt service. Now, to be fair, uh, China and other countries do have pretty strong um, offensive cyber capabilities, so they can do that themselves somewhat, but it may be easier if there are backdoors built in. I honestly don't know if there are or there are not, but it's fair to say in certain occasions Huawei has been less than like forthright on some of its activities and so we don't know uh, in this case. Now certainly my understanding is that uh, the security people uh, in certain governments around the world are just sort of they're now considering that perhaps uh, the cables and the other technology that's being built in Asia uh, will mean that there won't be a completely clean communications network that if you transport transmit uh, something along that there is a chance that it will be intercepted and that's maybe just the world that we're going to be living in now uh, so that's the sort of broad uh, problems there's only one more risk that I'd add to that is um, in terms of the China US uh, tensions is that we Huawei is now a technological powerhouse as are other 
uh, Chinese firms. And it's possible if they wanted to, for example, uh, coerce a state, they could um, not give access to patents and things like that, which, to be fair, at this point in time, the, China is not the only country in the world using technological coercion. I think it's fair to say that the US is as well. Um, but they are certainly the concerns that you have in the region with technological dependence on China. You're listening to the ACRI podcast with me, Eleanor Collinson, and our guest, Dirk van der Klee, Program Director of Policy Research at Australian Public Policy Initiative, China Matters. Today, we're discussing Australia and the Belt and Road Initiative. Prime Minister Scott Morrison's first overseas visit after his re-election in May this year was to the Solomon Islands. So this is the first time an Australian Prime Minister has visited the Solomon Islands since 2008, and the first time an Australian Prime Minister has chosen the Solomon Islands as their first overseas destination following an election win. So this seems to, f- to signal a firm commitment by the Morrison government to their so-called Pacific pivot that was announced last year. While Prime Minister Morrison was there, he announced increased funding for instru- infrastructure funding and loans for temporary workers participating in labour mobility schemes. Would this type of engagement compete or complement the BRI? Uh, I think it could do both, really. Uh, So let me say these suggestions, and I have a couple of extra suggestions that I'm going to make now, they... So these are your policy recommendations? Policy recommendations that I'll I'll mention now on this particular issue. Uh, They are things that would have been good to do regardless of the BRI, Um, A lot of what we've seen now in the Pacific step up, the Pacific pivot, has been in response to China. But some of the things that we've uh, seen happening are good for the Pacific and would have been good to do without China anyway. And I certainly think Pacific Island nations are aware that China's presence in some ways is really good for them because it makes other countries like Australia, like the US, far more interested in the region. They have more opportunities than they did five years ago, without a doubt. Now, if you break down the kinds of things that Australia is offering, it's basically two. One is uh, better labour mobility. And so we're now looking at the uh, Pacific Labour Scheme, Labour Mobility Scheme, which allows workers from the Pacific Islands to go to or come to Australia and work in um, low-skilled or semi-skilled occupations uh, outside the major centres, which is a really good opportunity for these these people. They will have jobs that they may not have been able to get in their home country. I think that is a good thing to do regardless. Uh, I would actually step that up a little bit more and look at offering um, working holiday visa rights with a quota uh, to, to um, people from the Pacific Islands and also maybe looking at something uh, with a longer-term labour uh, work visa right that is only offered to Pacific Island states so that they, people can come here and stay for a number of years and work in skilled jobs uh, either in the cities or outside the cities. Now, what this will do is provide country can, uh, people in those countries with job opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have that would be higher paying. It would provide remittances back to those countries and so it gives access to individuals and to governments to foreign currency and that's one of the biggest weaknesses of small states that are still developing. So I think those are good things. When it comes to competing or complementing China, I think it's both. It doesn't, if China wants to build infrastructure and we offer jobs, there's no, I think, contradiction there. That's that's really good. But in the case where 
we're looking at economic coercion, say, for example, like we have in Palau now, where uh, group tours are being blocked. This is another form of employment that Australia can offer that, say, the PRC wouldn't. When it comes to the second point part of uh, support, that is infrastructure building, I think there are individual cases where we're going to compete. I would suspect that would likely be in uh, cables, uh, particularly internet cables that are connecting Australia. Uh, I think Australia has decided that um, there's too much of an intelligence leaking risk with that, and that's probably where we're going to compete. Beyond that, I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to substitute every single project that the PRC offers. And to be honest, um, recipient governments in the, those countries are going to take both. Uh, whatever's available from China, they'll take, and whatever's available from Australia, they'll take. And that's probably a good thing. We can hardly criticise those countries for taking the money when Australia's leading trade export is to China. And so we can't criticise other countries when we're also willing to take money from the PRC as well. Um, yeah, so just to reiterate, my policy suggestions on that front is we can actually do a lot more when it comes to offering working visas. That's that's the thing that we, we can offer jobs for people that don't have jobs. And that's good whether BRI is there or not. Um, and it is something that we should do. Uh, the other weakness that these countries tend to have is around climate change. Um, and I think we should look at a climate change resilience fund um, for these states. Uh, now, we sh we could do that in concert with, say, New Zealand, uh, with the PRC if they wanted to be involved. But where these countries tend to get into developmental and lending troubles is when they need to rebuild after a catastrophic incident. Uh, Tonga, for example, which I mentioned before, they came into... that They have had um, problems with repaying the, their debt to Tonga, and that actually came after riots in 2006. That's when they did their first tranche of borrowing from China, and that's sort of a good example where catastrophic events can lead to um, tough debt repayment. So I'd, I'd say that that's something that we could look forward to doing it ourselves or with other countries in the region. If the PRC wanted to be involved, we should definitely have a discussion with them and see if they'd, they'd like to, to contribute to that. Well, with respect to um, climate change, is the federal government, the current federal government's domestic policy stance on climate change a surmountable or insurmountable roadblock on that front? I appreciate the contradiction with their domestic policy and their um, international policy. But of course, um, it can be called a resilience fund. It doesn't have to be called a climate change resilience fund, a uh, resilience fund for storms or something like that. And I suspect that uh, given the level of attention that the Morrison government is giving the Pacific Islands, that this is something they can implement. If they need to change the naming, well, so be it. I'm not personally fussed about the naming. They can call it whatever they want. Um, I don't think let's get caught up on a name for something that really could help uh, both at an adaption or in a mitigation level uh, for climate change. Well, in 2017, the then Trade Minister, Steve Chobo, signed an, a memorandum of understanding with the PRC on cooperation on BRI projects in third countries. This was done quite quietly. Um, have there been any examples of Australia... China cooperation on third country BRI projects since the signing of that MOU in 2017? Uh, there are very, very few, and their linkages to that MOU are tenuous. 
So there's, there's two examples I can sort of think of. One is there's a, a malaria, anti-malaria a program in Papua New Guinea. I'm not actually familiar with where it is exactly right now. It's a very small amount of money. And, and how that's progressed, I'm not sure, but that, that's a very small project. And I think there's maybe a couple of cases around the world where uh, contracting services firms have won advisory contracts on projects. I don't think... I'm not aware of Australia actually building anything, but certainly in an advisory role, there's a couple around the place, not many. And they're the only ones that I can think of off the top of my head after this was announced in 2017. Well, flowing on from MOUs, you've written that, quote, Australia shouldn't jump into an agreement on the BRI unless there is something significant on offer. Now, does that preclude further MOUs between Australia and China on the BRI and what kind of offer might be considered sufficiently significant for Australia to consider on that front? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's fair to say that the MOU we have now, we haven't really gained or lost anything from it. And unless we negotiate for something very specific and concrete, I would imagine that would be the same with any agreement that Australia has for projects in Australia uh, with, an, with regards to an MOU. I mean, if I, Victoria signed an MOU with China and I can't make out that they're getting any benefit from that compared to, say, New South Wales. Um, so that's sort of where I sit in the broad discussion, unless we get something concrete. I think the downsides are quite low. The things that people usually mention will give, it, give China extra strategic leverage over Australia. I think the leverage that China has over Australia is economic now. That's in place whether um, we sign an MOU or not. If China wants to use economic leverage, it is capable of doing that with or without the MOU. Uh, the other other sort of discussion point you usually get is sort of it legitimises uh, some of the more negative things that China does. I don't really buy into that. I think we have 105 countries that have already signed on, I don't think that it really legitimises um, some of the negative things that China's doing. If we have a problem with those, we should speak out about those um, separately. When it comes to the actual benefits that we get, I, in the paper I point out that uh, if you signed a BRI MOU, it doesn't seem like you get any extra investment compared to those that haven't. Um, countries that haven't signed up to the BRI have also received infrastructure loans. Australia already trades significantly with China, and even in the tense political environment that we have now at a macro level, it seems like things really haven't uh, changed that much. And actually, James Lawrenson from your institute has written a paper on that recently, and I think it shows it quite clearly that at a macro level, trade continues to grow despite some of the tensions. Uh, so I'm not convinced that there's going to be immediate over overnight benefits if we just sign up. If we do sign up, we should make sure we get something very concrete and specific. The kind of things that I'm thinking of is an upgrading of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement. I think that would have to be with regards to goods trade tariffs rather than services trade tariffs in that some of the, sometimes when you negotiate uh, service access in China, it doesn't really work out as expected. But if we could go on the goods side, there's still quite a few... Um, goods that have quite high tariffs. I mean, they're the ones that are protected for everyone. It's sugar, oils, uh, rice, ones that have long-standing quotas and market access has been pretty limited for most countries. If we could get access on something like that, then I think it's definitely worth it and that would actually open up China economically a little bit more and it would be a good thing. Uh, if not, 
then fair enough, we can sit down and talk about it with Beijing, but there's no need to sign given that I think the strategic upsides or the economic upside, strategic downsides and the economic upsides are pretty minimal either way. So if we do it, let's at least make sure we get something for it. Is there any appetite, as far as you can tell, in Beijing at the moment to upgrade the China-Australia free trade agreement? Uh, I think at the moment there isn't, but Belt and Road is so important to the PRC that this might be something that would open the door for negotiations on upgrading the, uh, the free trade agreement. Obviously, I don't know what Beijing thinks on this, but that would be one potential thing that could happen. And if, if it turns out the case there is no appetite for it, well, then so, so be it and we don't need to sign. Um, that's totally fine uh, from where I sit. Well, let's finish up now with some of the policy recommendations that you've put forward in your policy brief for China Matters in terms of Australian engagement with the BRI. Um, a number of them seem to hinge on the receptiveness of third-party countries and also on Beijing's receptiveness. So I know you've already outlined a few of them earlier, but can you walk us through perhaps one or two more of the key policy recommendations in your paper and the considerations that Australia, uh, the PRC and third-party countries might need to weigh up in order to actually affect them? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, as I said, I already mentioned the... um, visa options. I, we don't need to get third-party approval for that that specific suggestion. Uh, we can offer that uh, bilaterally if we want to or unilaterally if we want to, and then it's the choice of individual citizens in those countries to come. I did make a recommendation that requires receptiveness from other, other countries with regard to visas in the Pacific, and I said, why don't we at least have a discussion, for example, with Korea uh, or Japan who have their own labour mobility programs. Uh, They also have working visa programs that are not as heavily subscribed as Australia's uh, and see if they'd be willing to open them up to Pacific Island citizens. Now, Japan's, it is in some way already done. It seems to me that for most countries with regards to Korea, that hasn't already happened. And this would be an excellent way um, if those countries were receptive to try and um, bring those people to to those countries and and offer them jobs. And that would be good for our region and good for the countries in our region. And it does rely on receptiveness. Now, a lot of people talk about cooperating with other countries in our region, given that we are now situated between the US and situated between China, which are two very large and powerful nations and we need to cooperate together. This is a practical way to do that. And it's worth um, seeing if if it's possible. The second suggestion that I made, which is regarding technology, Now, Australia really hasn't been present on the discussion of technological norms in the region. And as you alluded to, but I didn't quite get to um, in my answer, is that besides technology itself, uh, China is also trying to export its norms of cyber governance. Uh, Countries in the region that have a tendency towards authoritarianism or surveillance are also very willing to accept technology from China, but they're also willing to accept some of the laws and norms. For example, Vietnam um, has recently put into law its own cyber laws, set of cyber laws, which actually look quite similar to what Beijing put in not long before that. And so we are seeing uh, an exportation of this uh, cyber governance norms and just generally uh, governance norms that are less free and open. And I think that probably isn't in the interest of a mid-size liberal democracy like Australia. So what we need to do is to work with other countries in the region uh, to see if we can just shift that a little bit. We're not going to be able to change it um, massively. The suggestion that I came up with is 
a ASEAN new technologies forum, which would involve Japan, Korea, Australia, ASEAN, and we could we could t- talk with um, the PRC if they were interested in attending as well. At least that will get all the major countries in the region at the one table, all the major technological powers in the region at the one table. Now, Australia, to be fair, already um, has been doing its, been trying to promote its version of cyber governance. There's a larger um, forum which has every country in Australia in the Asia-Pacific. It's just a little bit too large, in my opinion. This is a bit smaller and it concentrates on the countries that matter, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN, and from where we sit, Australia as well has most of the large countries in our region there. And so I think that would be a way forward to have a new technologies forum where you could discuss things like data norms, cyber governance norms, standards norms, and that they could make suggestions to a um, to the global standard setting organisations. Now, of course, that's not going to change everything. And there are countries in ASEAN, such as Vietnam, who really find themselves closely aligned with some of the things that Beijing's doing on in this space. So... I recognise that you're not going to change everything, but it would be a, a place where we get the main countries to come together, try and nut out solutions, and at least um, shift the needle a little bit, or we could raise our concerns over the most concerning elements of that. Now, the considerations I think for other countries in the region is they're quite there. There are concerns about China, so they're willing to on standards, norms, economic issues, at least get together and talk. Security is a little bit different. Um, And when it comes to uh, the PRC's involvement, I think that they would um, make a decision on whether their power would be diluted or strengthened by this. And it's quite possible they'd see that it would be diluted and so they wouldn't want to join uh, an organisation that discusses new technology forums. They have their own... um, forums that they're promoting themselves, so they may or may not join. Um, yeah, and then the final point on that is I think just generally speaking, with regards to a lot of suggestions that we can make in the region, there is an appetite in places like Indonesia, Korea, uh, Japan to work more closely on these small-scale um, economic and technological initiatives. And finally, just to draw out one more uh, key policy recommendation that you made in your policy brief... Hmm. Um, you touched on the TPP, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You recommended that Australia continue to encourage the United States to join up. But what appetite is there in the US at the moment, under the current administration, but also beyond the current administration, for joining up to the TPP? Current administration, zero. There's no hope of that. I think what we're looking at is a longer-term campaign lobbying people in Congress who are supportive of it. It's so hard to say what would happen if, for example, a Democratic nominee won because there's so many in the field. Uh, So there is, I think, room to shape um, the Democratic side on this. And there are are people on the Republican side that also support it as well. I think at a bureaucratic level uh, in Washington, there's a heck of a lot of support for this policy. So keep keep pushing away. Uh, I think this is an excellent way to... Uh, promote standards uh, in the region to try and get rules of the road around data, around uh, investment and labour rights. I think it is a, it is a good program, um, but it's going to be a slow build. If the US joins, then other countries in the region would be willing to join because they're going to get market access to the US. Uh, without the US, I think the chance of expansion in our region is probably relatively slim at this point. 
Well, Jack Vanderclay, thank you very much for your time. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. That's australiachinarelations.org. There you will also find more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks very much for listening.